Hey everybody, welcome to West Seattle Christian Online. If you are new, welcome. If not, welcome back. Today we're going to talk about the story of Joseph, which I think many of you are familiar with. And we're in chapter 3 of the story. If you haven't picked up your copy of the story in person, come on Sunday morning and we'll have one waiting for you so you can get the most out of our teaching each week. If you're watching online or you're far away from us, you can order a copy of that book online most anywhere. Uh, so let's start uh, with a quick overview for those of you who didn't have a chance to read it this week. Joseph uh, comes from a family with 12 brothers and one sister, and his dad's name is Jacob. And uh, just like last week, we talked about uh, Abraham and Sarah and their kids. This is also uh, a story about a dysfunctional family because Jacob has two wives, which I wouldn't recommend. And uh, each wife has their own kids. And in fact, not all the kids come from his wives, but some of them come from his wife's maidservants. So uh, chip off the old block here. Uh, isn't Jacob just like his dad, like father, like son, I guess. In case you already forgot the story about last time about Abraham having his firstborn son Ishmael with his wife's maidservant Hagar. You can find this breakdown near the end of last week's chapter in the story on page 26. Uh, but what it doesn't give you there is the order of the sons. So first, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, they're born first, numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, from Leah. Then Dan and Naphtali were born to Rachel's maidservant, Bilhah. After that, Zilpha, the maidservant of Leah, gave birth to Gad and Asher. Then uh, Leah had Issachar and Zebulun, followed by Jacob's only daughter, who is often not talked about, named Dinah. And finally, uh, Rachel had Joseph and Benjamin, and she died giving birth to Benjamin. So you can put numbers by each name in your book if you want to. Just open up to that page and write them down following that list. So uh, a lot of dysfunction, to say the least, not just your normal sibling rivalry. And more than that, the lead up to this is the backstory of Jacob loving Rachel more and getting tricked by his father-in-law into marrying her older sister, Leah, first. So just sprinkle a massive amount of favoritism in there for good measure. And so you can't say it any other way. He loves Rachel the most. And so accordingly, then Jacob loves the kids Rachel bears more than all the other kids he has. And really, he loves Joseph the most. Joseph is the firstborn of Rachel. Joseph is his favorite, the oldest of his favorite wife, Rachel. And he gives Joseph this many-colored coat. And this is just uh, it's 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 a fancy coat, not just because it's many colored, which would have made it really expensive back then. In that culture and context and time, this type of coat was what a father would give to his firstborn son. And the firstborn son was called the Behor. The Behor is the one who is responsible for the family legacy. The Behor bears the mantle of taking care of the family. He would inherit the most from the father. The idea of the Behor is that the firstborn son is supposed to take on all the things that the father believes and represents and lift them up and put them on display. So if you want to know who that family is, what they stand for, their character, their beliefs, then you look at the Behor. You can look at the Behor and based on how that guy lives, I can tell everything I need to know about this whole family. This whole lineage of people from this one family is supposed to show the world who God is and what his character is like. So when Jacob put that many-colored coat on Joseph, he's saying, I view my 11th son as the Behor, the one who you can look to to do all this. Well, you go back in your notes uh, about the birth order of Jacob's son. Who's the real firstborn son? 
It's Reuben. And so his brothers don't like him, not just because Joseph seems kind of stuck up and cocky and arrogant in the story, kind of like his dad, really. I mean, who wouldn't turn out that way if you're almost the youngest and your dad is basically saying to you all the time, you're the best, you're better than all the rest. But this situation even manifests itself in Joseph's dreams. The first dream we hear about is Joseph standing there with his brothers and uh, their stocks of wheat bow down to his stock of wheat. And of course, <laughs> he doesn't just tell his brothers about this. It's more like he pronounces it to them, like he's lording it over them. And probably the best way to win friends and influence people is not to go around telling people that you're better than them. Well, then he goes even further. And there are, in the next dream, there are 12 stars and the sky and the sun and the moon. And the sun and the moon and the 11 other stars bow down to the one star, which is him, this is in Genesis 11, right before uh, chapter 3 in the story begins, uh, page 29. But what we see here is a little bit of Jacob in Joseph, the trickster, the deceiver, the usurper. The idea that Jacob's name and identity is that he's always grasping for more and there's never enough. And Jacob, despite his flaws, always seemed to rise to the top. And I think that's how the story begins for Joseph as well. And the question we should be asking is, will Joseph then turn out like his dad, Jacob? Well, let's pick it up in Genesis 37, starting in verse 17. This is his brother's response when he's coming to visit them after he's boasted about all these dreams. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan, but they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. And then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Now there's something really important happening right here. First, this is just horrible and damaging. It's not okay. And second, the NIV translation in your Bible doesn't get it quite right. It says they stripped him of his robe. And what the Hebrew actually says is that they rip him, they rip two robes off of him. The, the first robe is the many colored one that we're familiar with. Uh, and with that, there's, when they rip that off, they're saying, you know, you know what, little brother? You're not the firstborn. Reuben is. He's the rightful heir. So we're going to take that off you right now. Thank you very much. But then they also strip him of the same robe that the rest of them are wearing. He's wearing it underneath the many colored robe. And when they do that, they're saying, and on top of that, dude, you are no longer one of our brothers. You are not part of our family anymore. And not just that, but we think that you are dead to us. And for some reason, Reuben isn't there to protect him at that moment. Judah says, let's sell him, and they do. And there's more than that going on here as well uh, from the Jewish perspective, what, what, which you just don't see or get unless you were raised in a Jewish family. What, when the rabbis would teach this, they would teach, it as, they would teach this whole story of Joseph as a retelling of Jacob's story. And the story of Jacob is very interesting. Remember, that Joseph is Abraham's great-grandson. You've got Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and now Joseph continuing the family line. God hand-picked Abraham, Joseph's great-grandpa, 
and taught him his ways. And then God said, your descendants are supposed to continue my way of life as a witness to the world. They are God's chosen people. And so the rabbis would look at each main character in this lineage and try to find different differences and similarities. And they find a lot of similarities between Joseph and his dad, Jacob. So they consider it a kind of retelling, but with some very important differences that go back to the question I asked earlier, is Joseph gonna be like his dad? His dad, who was always you know, cheating and scheming and trying to take position, even to the point of wrestling with God and still struggling to take control. So you have, you have these two guys, father and son, who were rejected by their brothers. And when Jacob stole the blessing from his brother Esau, Esau was ready to kill him. And so Jacob flees. In Joseph's case, he doesn't steal the blessing, but his brothers basically think he may have, may as well have stolen it. And so they fake his death and they ship him out. And then Jacob is working for his uncle Laban and Joseph is then working for Potiphar. And ultimately, both of them are rejected by who they're working for. And what's uniquely interesting is that they're both the firstborn, but not by birth, which is like, wait, what? They both take or are given the responsibility of the behor, the firstborn, but not by their birth order. Jacob tricks Esau and his dad, Isaac, and then Jacob bestows uh, the blessing of the firstborn upon Joseph, even though he shouldn't have been the chosen one. So then Jacob had to work for seven years to marry Rachel, but he's tricked into marrying Leah first. And then Jacob works seven more years to finally marry Rachel. And of course, there's something to do with Joseph and dreams dealing with seven skinny cows and lousy stocks of grain and seven fat cows and healthy stocks of grain, which end up being seven years of plenty and seven years of famine in the story of Joseph. When the rabbis look at this, this is how the rabbis teach this. What's going on here is this. The writer of the story is telling us to wake up and pay attention because in the retelling here, the story of Joseph is going to redeem the story of Jacob. Well, the story continues and you have this kid who is sold into slavery in Potiphar's house in Egypt, and he rises to the top. But then he's thrown in prison. And then he rises to the top. And then he's thrust into a government job. And all of a second, all of a sudden, he is second only to Pharaoh. He just keeps rising to the top against all odds, just like his dad, Jacob. What's interesting is that the crux of the story has to do with robes. Joseph has had his robes stripped from him by his brothers. And then we see it again. He's thrown into prison by Potiphar after Potiphar's wife steps up her seduction game. And Joseph flees her, leaving what behind? His robe. And she uses it against him to frame him. So then he's in prison under false charges. But like we said, he rises to the top even there. And he interprets some dream, giving, and he gives credit to God. And a long time later, after being forgotten about, he's summoned to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. This is on page 32 and 33 of your storybook. And again, after giving credit to God, Joseph explains Pharaoh's dream. And a good rabbi at this point would point out that Joseph kind of had an inside track on this dream interpretation thing. So we pointed out that his family history, where he knows his family history, where, where his mom and dad's story of, they had this story of waiting for seven years and then waiting another seven years for his dad to get married. He's listening to Pharaoh and all of Pharaoh's wise men and advisors, and they've been trying to figure out what the cows and stocks of grain mean. They know it stands for something else, probably. They know the number seven's important. Joseph hears it like one time, and he's like, 
this is the story of my parents. The cows and the stalks stand for years, like waiting. So he tells Pharaoh what's up. And Pharaoh says this in Genesis 41, starting uh, in verse 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command and people shouted before him, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. Did you notice the robe? <laughs> Pharaoh gives Joseph a robe and a ring and some jewelry. He gives him a name. He gives him a wife. Basically, he gives Joseph back everything he has ever lost out on and more. What we see here is a reversal of everything that had happened to Joseph. It, everything bad that has happened just reverses. His brothers strip him of his robes. They excommunicate him from the family. In the Hebrew, it says they threw him in a pit. And in the Hebrew, when Pharaoh summons him from the dungeon, in the Hebrew, it says they took him out of the pit. And then he puts new robes on Joseph and he gives him a whole new life. Pharaoh puts Joseph back into his previous position, restoring his honor, restoring who he was. And he also makes the dreams that Joseph boasted to his brother and family way back when they finally come true. But I think Joseph really gets what's going on here. As his brothers came to ask for grain during the seven years of famine, Joseph has been humbled. He has learned to trust God's story. He is able to have steadfast hope in the midst of hardship because he's figured out it's always better to trust God's story. So when Joseph was sold into slavery by his own family, I mean, how messed up is that? He doesn't give up his faith in God. In fact, it's all he has left to cling to. There is nothing left to cling to, nothing else. And like I said before, in Joseph, it's like all the problems of Jacob are redeemed. Last week we said, God doesn't just bless people so that they can be blessed. He blesses them so that they can bless others. Joseph's dad, Jacob, he always seemed to forget that. Always trying to grab more blessing for himself, often at the expense of others, manipulating and scheming and apparently not giving credit to God. And his life is a mess. And the writer of Genesis has this trick to clue us into when Jacob is going to have problems, when Joseph's dad is going to have problems, when he's going to do better. When he doesn't make decisions based on God's will, the writer of the story calls him by his old name, Jacob. And when he does make decisions based on God's will, he does the right thing. The writer calls him by his new name, Israel. It's like he has spiritual schizophrenia. Uh, the question for God's chosen people, his family, his representatives is this. What will you do with the blessing I give you? We know Jacob struggled with this. And the question for us is, will we have spiritual schizophrenia like him? It seems at first that Joseph will have that. And we wonder if he's going to turn out like his dad. But when God blesses him and he rises to the top over and over and over again, what does Joseph do with that? He always chooses the way of God. This is the way 
he blesses others. He becomes a conduit of blessing. And the ultimate test comes when he's forced to reckon with the betrayal that hurt him the most. His brothers who put him in the pit in the first place and who are now begging at his feet. Is this where he chooses the way of other gods? Is this where he chooses revenge, retribution, vengeance, karma? You're going to get what's coming to you. Joseph has every reason to whine and complain and feel like a victim, but he doesn't do that. I mean, essentially what's happening to Joseph here mirrors what happened to Jacob when Jacob worked for Laban. It was indentured servitude. But where Jacob was manipulating and conniving, and I want to get you back, Joseph chooses a different path. He acts the way a behor should act like. Not just of how the firstborn of Jacob should act like, but he acts like the behor of God. Taking up the mantle of the family and showing the world what God, our true Heavenly Father, is really like. That, by the way, is what the Apostle Paul is getting at when he wrote to the church in Romans 8. You are co-heirs with Christ. In other words, there's a family legacy and character that we are all as Christians responsible for demonstrating so that people can say, when I see that person, the behor of God, I know what their family is like, what they stand for. And they stand for love and blessing others. What else can you call it when you bless not just some random somebody out there, but somebody who has harmed and betrayed you. We call it forgiveness, peace, love. How about grace? That's a pretty good word for it. Well, Joseph continually displays an aptitude for extending grace and blessing, even to those who oppress him, even to those who betray him, just like someone else we know, Jesus. Blessing leads to blessing. Blessing leads to loving. Blessing leads to peace. Blessing leads to forgiveness. Blessing leads to grace. And so, with Joseph, somehow, he becomes the resolution that the narrative of Genesis has been working on. With him, healing starts for his family, but also for the world. And many times, that's right where it starts, with those closest to you. You have to bless those closest to you who maybe have wounded you the most before you can have a hope of blessing others and before you can truly experience grace and peace for yourself. So I want to leave you uh, with a few implications uh, before, before uh, if, you're, if you're doing this with a group or if you're doing this in person before you do it with our table groups. Here are some implications to look at. And the first one is this. God is ever present and ever working in your life no matter the circumstances. It's easy to believe or accept this, but to endure in it is what God ultimately calls us to do. Everyone will experience their own pits, their own cisterns. It's not our place to define and look down on others who are in those places or to assume that this is the limit of their story. They're never going to get out of there. You could see how others could have judged Joseph when he was down and out and they would have been wrong about him. So as you trust God's story, defiantly refuse to allow the circumstances of your life to imprison you. Joseph followed God's way as he engaged his story. This allowed him to rise above, not the least of which part of that was not allowing success or accumulation of things to define him. Only God's story and love defined him. And the last implication has two parts. If you're rock bottom, if you're, if you're at the bottom of the barrel, you still have the choice to follow through with God's story and to choose to bless others. And just as important, you can ask for the help of others and accept it. Don't grow so calloused 
that you're only grabbing blessing for yourself while you're down and out. Like Joseph, you can provide opportunities for others to escape their prisons. I'm Worth Wheeler for West Seattle Christian Online. Stay rooted and deep in Jesus and produce good fruit, my friends.